Welcome to Pemba On Demand. I'm Norm Chapin, your host. I am very excited to welcome you to our podcast. Pemba On Demand is produced for physicians interested in professional development. We will be discussing a wide range of topics on the podcast. I will be interviewing physician leaders from the U.S. and from other countries who have graduated from the Physician Executive MBA program at the University of Tennessee. These physicians will be sharing stories of professional and personal growth, overcoming challenges in their organizations, and discussing key leadership skills they have learned from the MBA program and ongoing professional development. Our live stream today is entitled Breaking Down Barriers, a Healthcare Lean Initiative. The University of Tennessee Haslam College of Business is the sponsor of the Pemba On Demand live stream and podcast series. Pemba On Demand has specifically been developed to provide education for physician leaders and to bring the latest and most, most relevant topics to you. Each live stream focuses on a different aspect of leadership, innovation, career development, or on the business of medicine. We really hope that you'll take full advantage of these practical, insightful, and relevant discussions designed to help physician leaders like yourselves to get new and to build upon existing leadership skills and perspectives. Pemba On Demand will allow you to be an even bigger force for good in healthcare. As always, CME is available for this live stream. Visit the website tiny.utk.edu forward slash Pemba On Demand to obtain your CME certificate. So I'm pleased to introduce our guests on the live stream today, Karen Murrell, MD, and Chuck Noon, PhD. Welcome, Karen and Chuck. Good morning. Good morning. So Dr. Morell is a practicing emergency physician, director of Care Without Delay of, uh, at Kaiser in uh, Kaiser Permanente, and she is a lean expert and consultant. Dr. Murrell is also a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians and faculty for the ASEP Directors Academy. She received her MBA from the University of Tennessee PEMBA program back in 2009. Karen also serves as a faculty member for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and their course on hospital operations and emergency medicine. Welcome again, Karen. Thank you so much, Norm. So great to be here. It's great to have you. And Chuck, Dr. Noon uh, received his PhD in industrial and operations engineering. I believe from the University of Michigan. Is that correct, Chuck? Yes, the national champions in football. Yes. <laughs> Always pains me to hear that, but I had to give you the opportunity to say it. <laughs> and, and Chuck is professor, uh, graduate in executive education at the University of Tennessee College of uh, Haslam College of Business and acts as a faculty for many of the university's executive MBA programs, including the physician executive MBA program. Chuck is also a lean expert and consultant with X32 Healthcare, and he also serves as faculty for the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, Perfecting Emergency Department Operations course. So welcome again, Chuck. We're really glad to have you on the show. Glad to be here, Norm. Thank you. So I thought we'd start out with some questions, and, and I'll direct my first question to you, Karen. Uh, you graduated from Pemba back in 2009. Can you tell us a little bit about your motivation for enrolling in an MBA program at that time in your career? Yes, I, I feel so lucky to be here talking to the other students and, and being able to connect with prior alumni. But uh, I've been in emergency medicine my whole life. I just happened to get a job in the, as a clerk in the emergency department at the University of Chicago. As I needed a part-time job at, when I was a student there. Then I went on and became a tech in emergency medicine. Then I was a helicopter dispatcher. Then I was a nurse for seven years. Then I was a physician in the ER. And then I was uh, moving up in leadership in the emergency medicine space. But I never thought you could do anything about weights. I thought weights were just part of what we dealt with in emergency medicine, just something we had to do. And I just read this little blurb from the University of Tennessee uh, newsletter from my um, colleague. I did residency with someone you may all know, Jody Crane, who also teaches in, in the program. And he was talking about this thing for lean, called Lean for Healthcare. And at the time, now I think most people have heard of it and, and have done things with it, but at the time, no one had really done that much 
with it. And I went and took a five-day lean operations course at the University of Tennessee, where I got to meet Chuck, who's become a really good friend. And uh, it transformed my world. And I realized we don't have to do things in the way we've done them. And then I wanted to know more information. I wanted to know more about business. I wanted to know more about how we can really drive operational improvements and really improve care for our patients. And so that was my main motivation to go on to the MBA program. Right. So it sounds like the reasons you chose to attend specifically the PEMBA program was your exposure to Jody and to the lean courses that were being offered by the university. And I know UT obviously has a very strong focus on, on lean. Were there other reasons that attracted you specifically to the PEMBA program? Well, I love that it's a physician-only MBA. I love being able to uh, have colleagues from around the country and around the world and get that exposure. And I think physicians, you know, we've done a lot of training in the past and we have a lot of background coming in. So it's so nice to have a program that uh, really allows us to build on on the information that we already know in our uh, prior education. So that was one of the main motivations. The other motivation, honestly, was that it was a one-year program, which I think is amazing for most of us who are very busy people. Yes, that was a main attraction for me as well. I had tried for several years to fit uh, executive education into my career, and I, I, the 12-month and holding myself accountable to get the work done in 12 months was a real motivator for me as well. So you mentioned you had already started to accept leadership roles in your emergency medicine career at that point. Can you tell us a little bit about where you were at the point you decided to supplement your education with, with the MBA program? What, what was your role at that time? So when I took the course, uh, the short course, I was an assistant director in the emergency department. And then when I came onto the PEMBA program, I was the director of our emergency department. and. To be frank, we were in a kind of a crisis state. Our volumes were going through the roof. Our wait times were very long. There was a lot of information in our newspapers in Sacramento County about a little girl that had a very bad outcome from long waits. And, and so in my career, I had a lot of pressure. They wanted me to become us as to be the first trauma center in the Kaiser Permanente system. And we also had a huge psychiatric crisis in my community where we were boarding 20 or more psychiatric patients every day. And so I needed help, to be frank. I needed some help with uh, some, some lean help and also... I needed that business kind of education to think about things in a little bit different way. I couldn't just focus on the medical diagnosis that we're really pretty good at as physicians. I had to think about things from a leadership perspective. And, and so that's what I Okay. So I think you've kind of answered this question, but a lot of physicians who are considering pursuing advanced degrees um, do consider other master's levels programs like a master's in public health or MHSA. Did you look at pursuing any of those types of degrees or were you pretty convinced early on that the MBA would would be the right road for you? You know, when I got into the program, I don't think I knew all of the advantages of the MBA program. I was kind of going because of my connections, but I really found by the end of the year, I really am so glad I went on to do my MBA because it's not only taking accounting classes, it's not only doing marketplace, it's not only doing those things you really become a different person by the end of that year long program. You really think about things in a new way. And so it was the multidisciplinary approach of the MBA program that really made it valuable for my career, I think. Great. So what was the biggest, you said you really didn't know that much about it. I, I always like to ask physicians who go through an MBA, what was the biggest surprise that came out of the MBA program for you? What did you get from it that you least expected? Well, for me, it's the relationships I developed and, and really hearing from people around the world and really discovering that entrepreneurship side of it too that I hadn't really been exposed to in the past. I had been working for Kaiser Permanente, which I'm a strong proponent of, but we're really kind of an internalized organization. So seeing all of the different venues and all the different opportunities and, and all of those things was really the most important thing for me and actually getting to interact with your small cohort through the whole program meant you actually make some lasting friends and things too and, and you can always have someone to bounce ideas and things off of yeah. so was there was there a I'm trying to think of how I can ask this question because I want to follow up a little bit but 
I think many people who go to an MBA feel that there's so many positive impacts on their career. It's a little hard to single one out, but can you identify a, a positive impact this has had on your career, professional development, or even personal life, or opportunities that this provided that you might not have had if you hadn't gone through the program? Yeah, I guess it for within my Kaiser Permanente career, it meant a big difference. It made a big difference for me. So I went from being the director and then I became the chair of the chiefs of emergency medicine for which for us meant I helped to direct our emergency medicine program across the whole continuum of Northern California. And we're the largest Kaiser Permanente organization there. And I could actually spread some of these principles to the other physicians there. And it actually helped me direct how I ran the meeting. For instance, I made people leave their phones at the door i we made them turn off their computer we actually brainstormed i use a lot of the techniques that we learned in our leadership classes to actually run those meetings so so internally it helped me get promoted but also i feel so lucky to get my relationships with chuck and jody because i think one of the funniest things i still remember arriving in a snowstorm in the middle of newfoundland at one in the morning and uh, being really afraid i was going to die out going off the road but being able to work with people from other countries and and because what I learned is that it's the same problems everywhere so I've been lucky enough to do some lean work and, and other principles in emergency medicine for sure but I've also been able to do things in clinics I've been able to work in hospital operations that's what I'm working on now hospital operations I've been able to write a book on psychiatry and all of those things were because of the relationships that I made particularly with Chuck and Jody who allowed me to pull along with them and and uh, do cut consultive kind of things. Also, it allowed me to get those relationships with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. So now I do a lot of work with them. I was able to make relationships with people from ASEP and now I teach at the ASEP Directors Academy. So it really allows us to spread that kind of lean work and and really allows people allows me to teach that we don't have to do things in the standard way that we've always done it we can make a real difference in our careers how do you balance what what are your current balance between clinical emergency medicine right now uh administrative emergency medicine or administrative work and the lean or performance improvement consulting work how is that what does your life look like in that respect? I always say I'm going to wind down now. I'm getting a little bit older. I wish I could retire, but I haven't done that yet. But I'm doing about 50% uh, clinical and 50% uh, lean work on my current job. And then most of my days off, luckily, emergency medicine is pretty flexible. We don't have a nine to five job, so I could kind of squish things together. And then I'm actually doing a lot of my consulting work on the side as well. So usually working more than full time, but maybe in a few years, I'll be winding down a little bit. That it sounds like that adds up to about 150, 180% of full time. <laughs> if I'm, if I'm doing the math in my head correctly. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's all fun too. I mean, that's the, the thing that's, it's kind of joyous work too. When you make a big difference like that, it really, it's, it's very rewarding. And, and, um, it's always for me it's always about making things better for patients but also easier and and for people who are doing the work so particularly now post covid i know we're going to talk a little more about that late, later but uh, we have this kind of uh, low morale going around medicine in general, I think. So being able to give people back that joy and work is uh, really makes me happy. Right. Well, Chuck, I have a few questions for you as well, if you don't mind. Um, sure. And we, Karen obviously has a lot of passion for organizational improvement. And you can just tell by listening to you, Karen, that you bring a lot of passion to that. I'm sure you bring a lot of passion to everything that you do. But... Chuck, you came, uh, you came into this from a little bit of a different background, and can you talk about what your passion was and where it comes from for organizational improvement? Absolutely. So, factoid about me, I'm in my 37th year on the faculty at University of Tennessee in the College of Business. But um, if I go back and kind of look at my progression career-wise, uh, I joined the faculty uh, again, straight out of an industrial engineering PhD program in 1987, and did the regular, you know, assistant, associate, full professor, uh, kind of uh, theoretical focused research until about, you know, 1998. And that's when the College of Business launched the Physician Executive MBA program. So 
I uh, was part of the team that developed the program and I've taught in it ever since. The, the great thing about teaching in that program is that you have this, uh, number one, I mean, you have mature, hardworking, very smart students. So that's, that's always a joy to teach. Uh, this, the second thing is that you get this wonderful window into practice, into the real world. So, uh, so my career then began to shift towards really trying to solve practical problems uh, and, and actually see the results of, of that application. And so that's, the, that's what really kind of excites me personally is, you know, I, I would argue it's like cutting your grass because you get immediate results and, uh, you know, a lot of enjoyment from that. So, um, so th you know, since 98, uh, I learn every year when I teach the physician uh, MBA students. Uh, I work on selected projects, uh, you know, throughout. And again, they are they're, you know, even when the projects complete or our in, our involvement in the projects complete, we usually you know stay very close to the clients to to really understand sustainability of the improvements, uh, how they're performing, and 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 uh, in other words, truly engaged, truly invested in in the outcomes uh, that we uh, are involved in. So would. It sounds like you didn't embark on your career to specifically become as heavily involved in improvement projects within healthcare organizations. That grew out of, is it fair to say that that grew out of the university's decision to develop the physician executive MBA program? And then as you got more involved in that? That firmed it up. But uh, when I was actually a master's student in industrial engineering at University of Louisville, uh, I, you know, needed some living expenses. And so I took a job working for a healthcare consulting firm. So this is back in the early 80s. And I did some what were at that time, there wasn't, you know, the concept of lean healthcare wasn't, uh, wasn't being discussed, but we were doing process analysis and so forth. So uh, my first introduction to healthcare was was in the early 80s as a master's student. But it wasn't until 1998, when the college made the decision to uh, launch the healthcare MBA, well, the physician EMBA, and later on the healthcare leaders EMBA, did I really, uh, really get involved in earnest? And to do that, of course, you know, requires you know a, a large ramp up in terms of understanding that that industry. I mean, among industrial engineering, it's very common to study manufacturing processes and making them more efficient and higher quality. Uh, but service operations like healthcare uh, sometimes are, are not as uh, not as uh, given not given the I guess treatment they should be. Yeah. So it's it. I guess I didn't have that historical background. I didn't realize that you had started doing some work in lean healthcare before it was called lean healthcare back in the eighties. Yeah, exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and you know. When you're involved in, say, the launch of a physician executive MBA program, there's really you know two things you can do. One is it just you just kind of consider it to be another teaching thing that you do, and you go in and you you do your teaching. But uh, what Karen alluded to, and and what really happened in my case was you know began to establish very strong relationships with students after graduation, and. Uh, and they would see the value of involving myself and some of the projects that they had going on at their particular organizations. And we also saw the value of bringing them and their expertise back in, in terms of uh, teaching within our physician EMBA program and other, other programs. And so, uh, so it, it's kind of a two way thing. Uh, and, 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 you know, there are things I can teach about clinical operations improvement uh, that people will, you know, say, "Okay, that sounds really good." But when they hear from Karen or from Jody, from a from a physician leader who's got the clinical cred fully covered, uh, it it's much more profound in terms of uh, getting that point across. So we've had we've had a great time teaching these improvement methods in all kinds of 
healthcare systems, payer systems, you know, international. We've Karen's been taught a lot in the Middle East. Uh, you know, we've taught together and in just a variety of settings. So it's been it's been and as she said earlier, the notion of doing things more efficiently, better for the patient, better for the staff, uh, better quality. I mean, that's a robust concept. Doesn't matter who's who's paying who. Uh, that's certainly a robust concept. And Norm, I would just say that the combination of having that clinical work plus the data analytics is so important. Chuck gives that lecture on queuing and I was thought, oh my God, this is so interesting. I'm gonna really become an expert on queuing. And then I got the math books and I'm like, this is way over my head. But I think having the combination of the two of us together or a combination of any clinical expert with a clinical, someone who's an expert on the data really makes the performance improvement projects shine. So are you, with the consulting work that both of you are doing uh, with Jody, I know um, we talked about X32 Healthcare in your introduction. Is that the, the vehicle that you use to do most of your consulting work? Well, for, for me, X32 was a company that Jody and I created back in about 2008. And uh, that was the vehicle we used to do lean education, uh, analytic modeling, and also sort of on the ground consulting. So we did that over the next 10 years. And then in, in 2018, uh, X32 Healthcare was acquired by Team Health. And Jody then became the chief medical officer of Team Health. He's still in that role to this day. And, and I continue to support uh, analytics uh, for Team Health uh, in that capacity. So uh, in more recent years, uh, if there's a uh, an external project. And for example, the one we'll talk about here in a little bit, we just stood that up using sort of my own sole proprietorship, which is called Lean Analytics. And and then just partner with uh, Karen or Jody or uh, any other uh, individuals that, that can bring into to a project as needed, so. On average, how many consulting how many consulting um, uh, engagements are you involved in annually? Well, I'll let Karen answer that, and then I can tell you my own. Okay. Yeah, well, I do a lot of work with Chuck, Chuck, obviously, and with Jody and with their company, but I've also done quite a lot of work with uh, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement as well, so, and their arm, because they asked me to do a lot of consulting. I've been in, to Qatar three times last year trying to help them improve their flow in their um, emergency department and in their hospitals, where they had a very different system in place and a very different infrastructure in place. And then... Um, within my own internal organization, actually I have a Kaizen event that's starting tomorrow if the ice storm doesn't derail it, which I'm, we're waiting for. And then, so usually I would say for me in this new role, I'll probably do between a combination about 20 of them in a year, I would think. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, with respect to my own involvement, uh, I tend to favor just a handful, but usually sort of larger engagements that might be uh, like multi-point assessments, analytic modeling, uh, teaching, and so forth. So, you know, maybe maybe average, you know, four to six per year or something like that. And uh, alongside Karen, I teach for IHI and, and you know, made, uh, gosh, I think six trips to Canada last year on, a, on just simply one multi-pronged engagement. I'm really excited to hear and learn about the Lean Initiative story that you're uh, about to share, but it sounds like um, you have slightly different, you, you talked about a big engagement, Chuck. What is that a multi-visit type of um, engagement where you would go back several times? And Karen, are your were your trips to Qatar, were they for different engagements or were they all part of the same engagement with just multiple site visits well for qatar it was a it was an initiative that was a, a year-long initiative where we went back multiple times and watched the project evolve over time and and, and changing so it was one large project within my current role though there's always with lean healthcare, you find that there's always room for improvement, right? You never, it's continuous improvement. That's the whole nature of the beast. So um, 
when you're I'm doing a local engagement, I really like doing these small projects where you can really get into the meat of it and fix a small problem that's really uh, bothering you. Well, for instance, tomorrow we're working on low and medium acuity flow in, in the emergency department at one hospital. Then I'm going to another hospital next week and we're doing the same thing. We're kind of mirroring the engagement. And then... I'm hoping to bring Chuck on later in the year to really work on our radiology flow through the whole hospital. So there's any number of projects you can do. When I was working in Northern California, we did everything for, in the hospital. We became, I was kind of joking that we were this Kaizen hospital, but any problem we had, we found that this was a method that really worked for us, that we would bring the multidisciplinary team together. We'd spend three to five days and we'd actually fix these small problems. So that way we were able to really improve our, our operational metrics and by the end of it we were actually performing in the 99th percentile of the country for uh, large large sized emergency departments but it was step by step by step and we do things in the urology clinic just even we did a project in the pharmacy where we were looking at things we did things all over the organization transportation everything right right so uh to answer your question about the multi-prong so for example uh uh, last year through Team Health, we had a large engagement with uh, four separate hospitals in the Ontario province. And, you know, there were numerous visits, uh, one involving or, or several involving uh, what are called assessments, where a small team goes up and we intensely interview and do data analysis. And we, we try to look for the opportunity for improvement. We, we we, we try to identify what are the barriers and then what's the delta? What, what could you really attain by focusing uh, on a particular aspect of the, in our cases, usually it's patient flow. We would then come back to sort of prep the improvement event by some education. And then we would c conduct an improvement event with a, with a uh, subset of the folks from the course. And again, as, as Karen mentioned, our sort of style of choice is usually after some education, perhaps a three-day improvement event where you're planning and getting things set up on the first two days. And then on the third day, you're actually testing a new process, which either, you know, takes a life of its own right there, or you learn a lot about it and you come back and repeatedly pilot. And, and that's what what we did, for example, with the uh, with the project we'll talk about in a bit at Boston. So yeah, I'm excited to hear about this this project. I know we've talked a little bit about it in preparation for for the live stream, but I think this would be a good time to transition into uh, your presentation and kind of have you share with the audience a little bit about the project, how it developed, and the types of things that you are working on. Okay. So I'll uh, talk a little bit about the genesis of this project, uh, first of all. So Karen and Jody and I uh, teach in the uh, Institute for Healthcare Improvement Emergency Department Improvement Initiative, and we had, uh, uh, we had some students that attended that from Mass General Hospital. And so then they invited the three of us to come back and teach a one day, just a kind of a one day immersion into the notion of lean improvement. So Karen, Jody and I went to Mass General Hospital uh, to their ER and, and taught that group. Well, one of the individuals from Mass General who was the champion of that one day course uh, took a position, Brian Yoon is his name, and he took a position over at Boston Medical Center. And, uh, and so then, that was that relationship that later, you know, uh, caused him to reach out uh, to say, "Hey, can you all maybe come and take a look at uh, our ER?" And and this is back in uh, 2022, and it was in the throes of lean, and we've got all kinds of challenges in terms of staffing and so forth. So, the the reason for the the project was, you know, first of all, they are a you know level one safety net hospital uh, uh, in downtown Boston about, you know, it's a, you know, high volume, about 350 patient arrivals a day, uh, about, you know, 20% admit rate. Uh, and so they were having a lot of challenges in terms of long length of stays, a uh, lot, fairly high rate of patients leaving without being seen. Um, and, and a lot of that was due to the fact that there was, there was a perceived bed shortage in the emergency department. Now, 
that bed shortage in the emergency department, if you know anything about queuing, is that it stemmed from the fact that they were having trouble getting patients upstairs. In other words, admitted patients were, were being held uh, in the ER, basically tying up the, the treatment beds. Now, when we, you know, their, their current state at the time was that down the hall, actually a pretty good little walk was a fast track. And so they would see the low acuity, they would direct the low acuity patients over to this separate 10 bed fast track area. So that was the setup, but everybody else who were mid acuity or, or more serious acuity would head over to the main side, uh, and, and they would do their best to, to try to, uh, see all those patients in a timely fashion. But at the time of them reaching out, their metrics, they were not meeting their goals uh, and were looking for, for you know, what would be some high leverage points of improvement. So if you go to the next slide, what we did was we started with, first of all, an assessment. And so uh, Jody and uh, Karen and I went up and we interviewed and we did analysis and we realized that there were some opportunities in terms of patient flow within the emergency department. And also we were, we were questioning whether the wisdom of having the separate uh, 10 bed fast track geographically away from the main side was the best way to do that. So we then came back and we conducted a, a two day sort of lean improvement course for about, I guess, 30 uh, folks from the ER, but it was a good cross section of, of providers, of nursing, of registration. We had lab, uh, radiology, uh, some folks from the inpatient side. So anyone that could possibly affect the flow uh, had a representation in this course. So if you continue on then, so the next step in this sort of multi-prong, so we've done the assessment, we've done some education, but a subset of the folks that attended the course then uh, attended a three-day improvement event that was facilitated by Karen and I. And again, it was about, uh, about, I don't know, 15 folks that were involved in that improvement event. And you can see the list here, it was a good representation of, of the, again, the, all the people involved in patient flow within the ER for sure. But, you know, it's not Karen and I standing up at the front of the room telling them, okay, we've got the solution and this is what we think it is. It's really about sort of objectively presenting the data, uh, hearing from them what the challenges are, and hearing from them in terms of what their ideas for improvement are. So it's it's true facilitation as opposed to us dictating a, uh, a solution. So for example, here we've got the layout where we're starting to, to consider options in terms of handling the lower acuity or mid acuity patients. And we're, you know, we're, we're noting, uh, you know, one such thing is, is the change in the possible location of, of treating those patients. If you go to the next slide, you'll see that uh, we also, of course, part of any improvement event like that is mapping. And we start out by, you know, saying, hey, how are patients currently treated? How are these low and, and uh, vertical mid-acuity patients treated? And let's capture all the steps involved in that. And so that's the current state, and this is kind of classic sort of lean Kaizen approach. And then we challenged the group to say, can you come up with a future state? In other words, what could the process look like? What would be ideal from the patient's perspective? And so, you know, after getting all the various handoffs and steps captured for what the current state was, was uh, using, we then got to a future state that really involved only about five steps. Just come in, head to the right direction, uh, and uh, and get the team-based care and so forth. So if you if you uh, roll to the next slide, we'll see that you know. So what were the elements that we were going after? And so what what we had sort of analyzed and we we knew was was a good opportunity was that if we could re reduce the the load on the treatment beds. Uh, then that would help, you know, clear a lane for the patients that were currently some of them, you know, higher acuity patients that were sitting in the waiting room. So the question is, can we reduce the footprint uh, of, of bed consumption by these low and mid acuity patients? And uh, so, so some of the elements that we we arrived at and then decided to test was this notion of you know a patient walks in the door and the first point of contact is with a pivot nurse 
who following some very strict criteria in terms of inclusion, either says you're eligible to go to this, you know, streamlined low mid acuity area, or no, you are, you know, you need to head to the main side as soon as possible. So it was like, it was a very sort of quick, but rigorous um, uh, sorting, if you will, saying, hey, you turn right and you turn left. The patients that turned right into the, the low or mid vertical mid-acuity area, the, the, the whole notion was like keeping them vertical. So don't have them lay down and take up an examination room if you can any way avoid that. If they need an IV, there are some recliner chairs that you can sit in and do that. If you are waiting for test results to come back, there's a designated waiting area that you can uh, you can wait in and not be tying up one of those beds. The other thing was efficiency in terms of telling the story. So a patient comes in, they get directed to this area, and then there is a, a doctor and nurse team that walks in together. They've got you know computers there, and both the doctor and the nurse are ask, asking them questions, uh, doing their assessment. They're hearing it once. They're documented documenting as they go and uh and and super efficient communication between those caregivers and then another thing is that you know there's patients going there some of them need of course lab work some of them need uh imaging and so forth so we we wanted to minimize the delays by uh of turnaround time for whether it's lab or for uh imaging and so we, you know, it turned out it made sense with the volume that we were going to be able to direct to that area. It made sense to dedicate a transporter just to keep those uh, imaging patients moving very. So, uh, so again, you know, this was a this was a rather large, uh, you know, new process to test. It involved a new area. It involved new processes. It involved even clinical decisions with respect to PO meds versus IV meds and so forth. And, uh, and everyone had to know their role. And so it was a tough order to get this all together in the first two days of the, of the improvement event in order to be able to test it on the third day. So Norm, if you go to the next one, I love this, uh, you know, <laughs> that we have here. And that is, this is the, the, this is this rapid assessment zone is what the team came up with. And uh, on the right side, uh, uh, you know, patients would come in, they would hit that pivot nurse, and if they were told, if they were eligible for this low vertical mid acuity area, they would go to the right and they would get, they would go in and, and when their name was called, they would, they would go into an examination room. The doctor nurse would, would do the assessment. If they needed drawn, there was a, there was a little lab station right there. If they needed imaging, there was a transporter ready to take them to and from imaging. It was all in this very compact area. It, it was only about a total of seven treatment rooms that were consumed by this design. So, you know, there was of course like, you know, four examination rooms with four potential teams of docs and nurses, but there was also a, 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 a pelvic room. There was also a procedure room uh, there were, as I mentioned, there were recliners for patients that needed hydration and so forth. But this, this, you know, sometimes we we think bigger is better. But the, for lean flow, uh, the the notion of compactness, which facilitate, which minimizes walking for patients and caregivers, but it also enhances uh, communication between uh, the groups. So that was, you know, what we cobbled together. And then if you go to the next slide, this was just a a uh, kind of overview in terms of of uh, uh, the the group right before we started the the uh, pilot on day three of the improvement event, and uh, they worked you know they worked tremendously to get things ready. Everyone, well, I should say most everyone brought a great open mind. Uh, although we'll speak a little bit about pockets of resistance that are naturally going to occur in these kind of endeavors. But uh, the team came together. It was it was like literally, uh, you know, getting ready to play a championship game. I mean, it was like, you know, all hands in and, and, and let's get this going. So if you go to the next slide, we'll show you sort of what some of the 
the uh, first uh, you know looks at performance were, and that was on on the left side of each of these pairs of graphs are showing sort of what the baseline performance was, and uh, and so the the right bars on each of these sides represent this new process, which is called the rapid assessment zone, the RAS. So for the low acuity patients, they, they were able to reduce uh, length of stay by about 43 minutes. For the me, uh, medium acuity patients, for the vertical ESI-3 patients, they were able to, to drop that actually almost three hours. So, uh, so the pilots demonstrated what could be done in terms of, of, of streamlined patient flow through a relatively small footprint. So, and again, different than the fast track before, this took much less uh, floor space, plus it started to uh, involve the mid-acuity, the ESI-3 patients, which are the largest swath of patients that come into an ER in the first place. And those are the ones that can potentially be the most dangerous because you, know, you wanna get those patients assessed as soon as possible because you're not sure if they're really sick or they're not. Now, if you, uh, so this is great. And from a temporal standpoint, it was delivering. And so if you go to the next slide though, you'll look at what was happening in terms of top box scores uh, for patient satisfaction. So during the pilot even, we had constructed, you know, little surveys for patients to, to, to answer, but also, you know, and I don't need to go into the details of this, but basically the new process relative to either the pre-existing fast track or the main side ED was a was a very significant jump in terms of uh, patient satisfaction. Because again, at the end of the day, you know, patients want to get in and, and be seen and, and be treated and, and move to the next uh, area of care or to be discharged home. I mean, it's kind of a simple formula in a way. So if you go to the next next slide really quick and uh, this was now a project that, after the success of the implementation of the RAS, then uh, we got a call back from Boston Medical and said, hey, you know, we've now done a lot of things in terms of improving our emergency department uh, performance, but there are some processes that now go outside of the walls of the ER. And one of them was, say, imaging and lab turnaround time. And so we we uh, basically worked with them and said, hey, you know what, we think there's a big opportunity in terms of uh, CT turnaround time. And so again, and I don't wanna dwell on the analysis, but this chart here is kind of very telling. So the blue bars represent CTs being ordered by hour in the ER, and the orange bars represent the CTs being started uh, in imaging. So every time the blue bar is bigger than the orange bar, that means you're naturally building up a queue of patients who are waiting to be uh, get their imaging studies done. So in the, the little skinny line at the top basically shows the, the, the order to begin time. Uh, it, it naturally is going to increase over the hours as, as this imbalance is occurring. So then the natural question is you can't say, well, you know, order less CTs from the ED. Uh, but what you can do is say, what can we do to improve the, the uh, throughput rate uh, for, for radiology, in particular for the CT uh, unit? And so if you go to the, to the next one, again, we, we always, by the way, you know, we feel data is, is the great objectifier, data analysis, because it is what it is, and it, it can really help target opportunities for improvement and and also gives you a basis for comparison later on so you know we looked at, at basically the key intervals of of this process between ordering an imaging study and having the res the final results back and uh and, and you know if you look at I'll, I'll just cut to the chase here on this very top line is you know is the 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 order to final results and, uh, and, and, you know, if you look at the lowest part of that line versus the highest part of that line, one can make the case that says, well, why can't you just perform at the lowest part of that line throughout the entire day? And you can actually ask the question that says for each of the component intervals, 
can you, if you just took the minimum of each of the lines below that, then, you know, that, that's what, what you're, you're clearly capable of doing. So if you go to the next slide, this was, we went back, did some more education, and then we did an improvement event. Uh, a colleague, Keith Leitner, and I did an improvement event focused on uh, CT turnaround time. And again, we reduced the changeover time to make better use of the CT scanners and the technologists. We, we worked with transport. Uh, we took care of sort of a nagging label printer issue. We made sure uh, there were ample uh, lab tubes, uh, canisters for a creatinine analysis turnaround, made some little layout changes, uh, got the right amount of staff in place, and, uh, and again, and deployed this new process, you know, across all the nursing staff uh, in the ED. And so if you look at, I'll show you one final slide, and that is the uh, the results of the pilot. And and again, you you set this pilot up, and then you run it on the third day, and and then you compare how you know prior days performance looked in terms of the turnaround time uh, by individuals needing CT scans, and then you compare that to what was delivered in a streamlined fashion on the third day. And, you know, and that is exciting. That is truly exciting because, you know, now they did a num both for the RAS as well as for the CT process, they did a number of pilots before actually turning it on and going live with it. So uh, the CT process just got, uh, got in place permanently in early December, just about a month ago. Uh, and, and they're still continuing to improve and tweak it uh, and have it uh, get close to delivering the, the pilot kinds of results. So again, this is, this is just kind of an example. It started with assessment. We do some analysis to see what the delta is, the possible opportunity is. Uh, we feel it always works better when there's an installment of some education especially related to, to lean healthcare, and then the facilitated uh, improvement event. And, and again, you know, these were not, they're, they're not sort of easy. And there's an old saying that says, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And clearly that's not the case. Uh, a lot of organizations, the, the default setting is to not change. And so it's not until, until you as a physician leader are able to paint that future state and you're credible in terms of being able to attain it, uh, then you'll get their attention and, and they will follow you at least to, to try that out. And, and that's, that's what I think the physician leaders bring to this, to this mix uh, tremendously because, you know, again, if I was there by myself and, you know, there's a lot of things clinically that people could challenge me on and I wouldn't be able to, you know, uh, respond to, but when, when I'm there with a Karen or Jody and so forth, uh, they can respond to that. And, and especially it gets the attention of the other providers, you know, on the teams. So with that, I'd be happy to, Karen, you want to add any color to this? Yeah, I definitely do. And the one thing I want to say is that this project had a couple key things that, that are necessary for it to really work. It had a really, really engaged leadership team on the ground that they had this real vision for where they wanted their place to go. And I think that us as PEMBA leaders, we can set the vision for the people on the ground. And the other thing that these improvement events really do, there's two things. There's the process part that we're going to work on and we're going to help them get there. But you're also creating this culture of flow and getting people engaged and really wanting to do this work and so once you've done the one project it's a lot easier to do the second third fourth fifth that you need to do yeah and uh, this idea of continuous improvement the other thing I'll say is that as, as someone as humans I think that both Chuck and I would agree that we really do not like change at all 
And then it's really, you're always going to meet that resistance. So, so I've come have this kind of as a mantra of uh, expect 90 days of pain that, you know, as you're rolling things out, there's going to be this resistance and this pushback. But if you hold the course and let it get over the hump, it becomes part of the culture and it becomes part of uh, the organization. So it was a really great project. And I think because they had those amazing physician leaders and they really set the standard and the vision for where they wanted to go, that these were a success. Thank you both for that presentation. That really is a good example of impact that you can have on an organization through some of these methodologies. This podcast is sponsored by the Physician Executive MBA program at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville's Haslam College of Business. In less than one calendar year, this program will equip you with valuable business acumen and leadership development not found in traditional medical school curriculum. Are you ready to join the longest-running physician-only MBA program in the country and a network of nearly 1,000 PEMBA graduates? Visit tiny.utk.edu forward slash POD podcast for information about this exciting opportunity. And now we'll return to the episode. I was interested that you mentioned, Chuck, and I guess, Karen, this started sort of at the tail end or near the end of the biggest surge in the COVID pandemic in 2022. And in my experience, that was a very tough two years for emergency departments and healthcare organizations in general. You mentioned the staffing challenges that had been faced. And a lot of times my ER docs felt like they were practicing out of the waiting room that whole time um, because they just had so many flow problems in the emergency department. So you alluded to some unique or you, you alluded to some barriers that you ran into when you were trying to implement this project, but in your opinion, were these barriers sort of unique and related to coming in on the tail end of the COVID pandemic, or were they things that you had seen in previous years? I think there's some general problems that we see in almost every emergency department now that we've been to thousands of them probably we can walk in and see these general problems the COVID pandemic did uh, bring a whole new level I think I've never seen morale as low as I've seen in after the COVID pandemic particularly in emergency medicine so what I like about these events now is we can start to get bring back that engagement and that physician involvement and the other thing that I think is us as leaders is that we really do have to set that vision that for instance my vision for my place was our patients don't wait so we can't accept conditions no matter what they are we have to figure out new creative solutions because i don't think anyone would design healthcare the way we practice it now if you're a google engineer or something like that so i worked in one emergency department where every single bed was full of borders and i think that's what's killing emergency medicine right now isn't emergency medicine patients it's the boarding that we're seeing and uh so we knew that we had to do things in a different way, so we had to be very creative and and design a system using minimal nurses because the nursing staffing is so low right now, mm-hmm. where we'd have one nurse at the front, one nurse at the back, and we just load every single patient through this little like a turnaround, merry-go-round system where they could go get their labs or x-rays, and the physician who was going to take care of them came in there in an assigned and methodological, uh, you know, in a very standard work kind of way that they knew that that was their patient. So it allowed us to know which patients were the sickest, and we always had our eye on the waiting room. So was it pretty? No, it was really ugly. And the way it was waiting room medicine, but at least it allowed me to have some autonomy that I could practice the way I wanted to. I could still order my tests. I could still get the things done. I could still get treatments, and I could prioritize which patients needed to be brought in emergently. But we had to think in a very different way that we never thought before. And uh, so I'm, I'm convinced that Lean healthcare and this performance improvement is the way we're going to start to improve um, our physician and our staff morale and maybe get it back to where it was before the pandemic, hopefully. Great. Thanks for those comments. And Chuck, one of the things that and you made an, you made a comment earlier about lean healthcare improvement projects are like mowing the grass because you can see the immediate and tangible effects. But mm-hmm. um, I've seen a lot of organizations that like mowing the grass, you look out at your grass a week later and all of those changes and the beautiful lawn that you had has kind of gone away. So can you share with us, are there any particular predictors 
of sustainability that that you've identified when you go in to do these lean events that you include in your education for the leaders in the organization so that you don't come back in six months and find that the grass is all grown up again? A great question, Norm. Uh, indeed, and, and Karen mentioned as well, is, is it really takes commitment uh, by, by administration, management, leaders in the organization. If they're trying to hire a consulting group to come in and outsource improvement, and it's not in the DNA of the organization and certainly in, in leadership in the organization, it's doomed to fail. And so uh, one of the things we loved working with Boston was not only were they taking it very seriously and you know early on that was very apparent, but their persistence after the initial pilot test and they would never finish a pilot without scheduling the next one. It wasn't like, let's try this and then, you know, uh, we'll maybe try to come back and do it again some other time. Uh, they were very firm, so they, they managed the project very well uh, in that respect. And, and I want to just uh, tack on to something that Karen said, and that is, you know, what we saw with uh, COVID and especially inpatient staff shortages causing holds in, in uh, queued up back into the ER. You know, there was a tendency also for sometimes like the ER people to say, you know, like, there's nothing we can do because we've got all these holds. You know, we're a 60 bed ER and we've got 30 holds. And so we're not we, we're not going to do anything until the inpatient fixes their side of of the house. And, you know, my sort of question back to them was, you know, okay, well, if you've got a 60 bed ER and 30 beds are chronically tied up with holds, you know, are you running a world-class 30 bed ER? You know, like, let's, let's just, let's do the best. Let's accept that, that we've got a set of resources that have been taken away and let's do what we can with what remains. And that was why this particular project of, of, of a small footprint, streamlined patient flow for, for actually about half of discharged patients uh, go through this area each day. So, I mean, this, it's this mighty set of rooms in terms of volume throughput. And, and then the, the CT turnaround time is, I mean, the math is all there. If, if in their case, they were able to shorten the turnaround time with contrast by two hours, and they were doing that for about 30 patients a day, just in the ER. So you say, well, okay, 30 patients uh, a day, you're shortening their length, of, their in-bed length of stay by two hours, you just freed up 60 bed hours, you know? And so during the peak period, you know, that's like, an, that's like building out another five beds right there. Right. And so that's how the math works, so. Great. The one thing you mentioned, uh, both of you kind of mentioned this, as you said, the commitment of the leadership. So when you were doing the Kaizen events and the improvement events, it sounded like you had a lot of local frontline staff and leaders from within that uh, area, whether you're talking about radiology or talking about the emergency department in this case. How do you engage the executive suite or do you engage the executive suite in these activities in a way that you found to be um, more beneficial in terms of maintaining and, and achieving that level of sustainability? Yeah, for me, um, having that leadership engagement is so crucial. So I think when we first go into a place, of course, we meet with the leadership team very first thing. And then we usually ask the leadership team to come at the beginning of one of the, these events and let the frontline staff know that, hey, this is so important to our organization. And one of the most powerful, powerful things to me is having each member of the frontline staff give part of the report out at the end of the third day. So each person, uh, a housekeeping could be giving the same talk as a physician, you know, each person having a slide with their role in the department, talking to the hospital leadership team. Sometimes it's almost made me want to start crying because they've never had that voice before. And then having that leaders tell those leaders say how much they really appreciate that work. As we went forward with some of our events, our, the, our C-suite leader um, would often come down and round in the emergency department and let those frontline staff know, hey, he's still engaged, he's still interested. And then they were 
all of them would talk about it and we're willing to try the next thing. So I think it's critical. Right. Well, I'm going to switch over now. We, I forgot to mention this at the beginning of the live stream, but we do have time for some questions for Chuck and Karen. If you have a question for them, please enter them into the comment section and uh, we will address those. So we had one comment so far from Mike Shearhorn, who uh, is just passing on his accolades to both of you. Um, that he's enjoyed listening to the lectures and that kind of thing. So I thought that was, that was great. But I really, I really appreciate the time that you two have taken. I know that uh, your schedules have been very busy. Karen, yours especially has involved a lot of travel in the past week. Yeah, but I appreciate you both making time to come on the, the live stream. Um, for the audience, we will be releasing this as a podcast next Thursday, both as an audio and a visual podcast. So that will be available to you either on Apple Podcast or on uh, Spotify, uh, Google Podcast, and you'll also be able to see that visually at the YouTube channel, which we have Pemba on demand. So those links have been in the messages and the uh, communications that have been coming out from Kate Ashley and from uh, Tom as well. So I will close by just reminding you that you can have CME for this event by going to the website, and I will post that up here in just a minute. But thank you all for joining, and I look forward to our next live stream next month where we will be having some more very, very interesting discussion with Pemba alumni. That wraps up our show for today. Thank you very much for joining and listening to the podcast. If you have any comments or questions regarding this episode, please feel free to add them in the comment section on our website, tiny.utk.edu forward slash POD podcast. We love hearing from you and are happy to answer any questions you may have. I will add a link to the website below. Please also don't forget to subscribe to the podcast by clicking the subscribe button Add Pemba On Demand to your podcast library today. I would also appreciate it if you could leave a review of the podcast on your podcast player. Share the podcast with your friends and colleagues also. Please take good care of yourselves. And as always, good luck with your future.